0: this episode is focused on the best interviews of 2020 on Southeast Asia. We spoke to a variety of speakers on many different fascinating and important topics, ranging from censorship in Singapore to the history of U.S.-led violence in Indonesia, how Vietnam's war haunts its diaspora, to the Enduring popularity of the Trump like figure of Rodrigo Duterte. We're bringing you many different guests in this episode. You can listen to the full interviews with these guests on our back catalog at the Arts of Travel podcast. You can find that on Apple, Spotify, Google, and other podcast platforms. And for print interviews on Southeast Asia, you can go to our website, AsiaArtTours.com. We have great print articles about the Philippines, Thailand, Malaysia, and many other places and topics within Southeast Asia. Here's our best of series now on our best interviews of Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoy these fascinating speakers, and for our full interviews with them, you can go through our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. Thank you. This is Vincent Bevins on the U.S.-led violence against Indonesia during the Cold War.
1: A big gap in the understanding of the Cold War in the West, in the English-speaking world in particular, is that we tend to think that, oh yeah, well, we made alliances with bad guys and the bad guys did bad things and, and you know they got out of control and they shouldn't have done that the violence was not incidental to what they were trying to do. It was necessary to what they were trying to do, and it was constituted of, constitutive of the regimes they created. And why do I say that? It's very hard to kill lots of people. It's not something you do. I mean, there are historical exceptions to, to this, but as a rule, you don't want to be going through the work of rounding up and murdering hundreds of thousands of people. Um, it, it usually is done for a reason. and In the case of Suharto, the reason it kept going on is because the Indonesian Communist Party had 25 to 30 percent of the, the population either in the party or affiliated with it. The violence went on until they were able to take over the country with full control without any fear of resistance they needed to sufficiently destroy the base for President Sukarno, who was still the president, even though they had sidelined him while carrying out the violence. And so, and the United States, I want to make clear, was making it uh, extreme. They were very explicit in their communications with the Indonesian military that they needed to get this done, as, t- fully take over, sideline Sukarno, in order to be recognized as the, tr- the real government and get foreign aid again. So to the extent that a lot of people might have wanted to stop, um, and we have evidence that it was very, you know, we have evidence that it was not easy for the actual killers, right? They often had to be, they had to get them drunk or they had to threaten them. Uh, Nobody wanted to be the one doing the actual killing. Uh, And then, you know, this is human nature. Humans don't like to do that. So whatever pushback there was, The thing that kept it going was that this was a a means to actually cementing the control of the US-backed military over Indonesia. And by the time you get to 1965, conflict looks really likely. In order to really evade this whole uh, confrontation between various sectors of Indonesian society, you probably have to go back to the 50s and avoid that CIA bombing, avoid the civil war, maintain the multi-party democracy, work closely with Sukarno to make sure the economy was, was, um, was going well, because, and this is, I touched on this very briefly in the book, but, you know, one of those other components that is necessary to get the violence to happen is that the economy was bad in 1964 and 65, because Sukarno was very, um, was concentrating almost entirely on territorial disputes with the imperialist powers, because he, he was worried that Indonesian independence could go away. So if you went back to the 50s and did a bunch of things differently, you could probably avoid all of the violence. Once you get to 1965, once the the lines are drawn in the way that they are, I understand why it kept going. Um, the 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 perpetrators needed to keep going to come out victorious.
0: This is Mita on criticizing Jokowi in present-day Indonesia?
2: Okay, so um, with regards to uh, whether there will be a more full-throated criticism of Jokowi, um, I think uh, you mentioned the protests a few months ago and so that started around September in 2019 of, you know, hashtag reformasidikorupsi. I think that's the biggest uh Scale of protests that we have seen in Indonesia since 1998, um, and this was very much driven by student movements, but also labor movements, um, and it, it was it was a very diverse and cross-sectoral coalition of people that uh, joined this movement and this protest. But of course, as you also mentioned, it was the response to it was very violent. Um, you know, people died during the protests, um, as a result of police brutality. And I think, uh, the effect of that has been very swift. And I think personally, I, you know, I participated in the protests, um, but I also thought that it, you know, I had hope in it. I I genuinely thought that this would, uh, create a longer lasting pressure, um, and hopefully enact change um, th- those protests in particular i think uh, you know i don't think it was explicitly you know socialist or anti-capitalist but in terms of the issues that were highlighted it was very much uh, you know a pro-people movement in the sense of critic criticizing the government's emphasis uh on investor interests and capitalist interests in Policies like the draft omnibus law and job creation, and the um, proposed revision to the criminal code. Uh, those are just some of the policies that were addressed during the protest. So, um, but yeah, unfortunately, the response to that uh, from the state has been uh, very violent and very swift. Um, so, you know, it was not just the police brutality, but also the intimidation and the sort of more systemic, I would say, uh, intimidation, like. A lot of the student protesters, you know, were you know, either uh, expelled or under threat of being expelled. Um, so a lot of these same repressive uh, measures that you see to uh, basically repress dissent um, was enacted pretty much right away to quell the protests. Um, and I think uh, because of that, uh, we haven't seen that level of um Opposition, I guess, to this government since the protests died down uh, towards the end of last year. I think that, I don't know, um, I don't know if I am hopeful, (laughs) whether I think that uh, there's going to be a stronger critique. Um, But again, I guess I'm the type of person who, you know, I've divested from the state uh, and. this administration particularly um in a sense that i think right now the strategy that i prefer and that i am currently you know more invested in is like you mentioned the sort of people-to-people mutual aid efforts i think this administration has shown time and time again that it has failed to uphold the interests of the people and so i think it's up to us to enact those uh, networks of support and yeah organize basically um around each other for each other Um, it's it's funny actually uh, to speak about anarchism and the state and police uh force uh at this time because i don't know if you saw this but literally just a few days ago um the police uh apparently had you know arrested a bunch of anarchists um because of a plot to i think uh you know to loot like the entire island of Java, or something—it was—it was ridiculous claim like that. And apparently, they had arrested the leader of anarcho syndicalists, which is, of course, an oxymoron, and is kind of hilarious. Um, which, you know, like this—I uh, mean, obviously, when I read the news, like I laughed because it's such a ridiculous notion to be arresting the leader of an anarchist movement. Um, But also it's hilarious because I don't think, you know, Indonesian anarchists are nowhere near as organized um, to be able to sort of plan, you know, sort of an island-wide action like that. Um, But I think uh, we need to take that kind of thing more seriously. And the context to all of this is actually that um, the state and the police uh, in particular, you know, as an extension of the state... Uh, is always looking for an enemy, Um, and in the past, you know, it was the communists, as we saw in 65 and 66. Um, In more recent years, it was, you know, radical Islamist terrorists, Um, but now that those groups are no longer, you know, seen as a threat by the public, the police have actually begun to generate a new enemy in anarchists. Um, This is something that's relatively new. Um, and this has been deployed in cities like Jakarta and Bandung, especially where, and Jogja, where those and the you know anarchist networks and collectives have been particularly strong and visible in terms of um, supporting and fighting, supporting victims of uh, you know um, uh, evictions and uh, you know supporting farmers and labor unions and things like that. Um, where they have been, you know, portrayed as this sort of like evil, like r- destroyer of humanity and civilization, which is, of course, not at all what the what the movements are about. Um, so, so yeah, I think um, I would be very interested in seeing how this evolves in the next, basically, few weeks, because I think what you are seeing is both like a moment where uh, socialist anarchists. Uh, movements and initiatives are actually stepping up and uh, showcasing uh, its values and the fact that it is working to support people during a pandemic. Um, But at the same time, you also have the state uh, increasingly desperate for not only a distraction, but an enemy that they can blame uh, their failures in handling the crisis on. And in Indonesia particularly, it happens to be the anarchists. So, yeah, it's it's a very interesting dynamic that we're seeing now. This is PJ Tum
0: on the legacy of Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore.
3: I mean, uh, basically, a lot of it is tied up with the personal character of Lee Kuan Yew himself. Um, and there's always a danger of over-analyzing an institution um, and... Um, turning it into a sort of mirror um, for the the founder, right? Uh, 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 What's the word? Synodogue? Metonym? One of them. Um, Where the institution becomes, you know, the founder. Um, But a lot of it, because of his personal grip on the party and his need for control... uh, Leads Li Kuan Yu to expel um, anyone from the party who challenges him, um, because he's very much he believes very much that he is absolutely correct, right? So, for all that you say about Li Kuan Yu, um, there's several things that he that you know um, he always had a, a vision, a strong vision for the country. He always believed he was right. He believed in, you know, that he just needed to get the policy right, the incentive structures right. And as someone who thoroughly understood power, he saw the country in that way that he just needed, if he just had enough control, he could achieve what he wanted to achieve. Um, And then layered kind of uh, on top of that, was his own personal ideology, which grew increasingly conservative over time. And he also was, he foresaw where the world was going. He was very smart in that way. And so um, he was very much a proponent of socialism when it was uh, the dominant ideology of social democracy. And he was very quick to embrace neoliberalism, but these are kind of um, these are secondary to his control, and uh, secondary to his personal vision for Singapore. But rather used very much to justify uh, what he was doing, or to uh, you know place what he's doing within a broader framework to make it intelligible, palatable, acceptable. Um, and um, so I think understanding PAP, the PAP within that framework of Lee Kuan Yew wanting to transform Singapore and make it into an idealized society uh, helps us understand um, the kind of things he was doing and, and the more he was able to gain complete control the kind of shorter the gap became between uh, ideas that he dreamed up and public policy, which is why by the early 80s, he's not just talking about neoliberalism, he's talking eugenics. He's talking about controlling women's bodies and making them, you know, making more educated or wealthier women produce more babies because they had better genes. Uh, You know, he's he's sterilizing uh peop- you know uh women who uh, who were supposedly of inferior genes who are obviously uh highly correlated with class and race um and educational levels uh so they the, you know there's uh becomes very he he's willing to embrace these ideologies which are which clearly were very dangerous and already discredited in a lot of the world. Um, although at that time, of course, there was also this, I think, discussion about the bell curve and about uh, su- you know, superior genetics um, globally. So there's also, that brings me to sort of second point, um, which is global historical forces, that he was also very good at riding those historical forces and understanding um, how to position himself within that, uh, understanding um, where the world was going and, uh, and putting Singapore at the forefront of that. Um, so I think if he, if he actually was around today, he'd um, have a lot more clarity about the fact that we're leaving neoliberalism behind um, but if you look at the impact of that on his uh, heirs, right, uh, in particular his son, uh, they don't have that same vision. And I've explained in my podcast, I mean, in my videos and elsewhere, that they uh, to repudiate Li Kuan Yu and to change the policies he left behind would also undermine their own electoral legitimacy, undermine that that connection, that spiritual connection to the past that enables them to maintain and argue that they are the natural elite of Singapore. So they are, they are trapped in sort of late era Lee Kuan Yew ideology and cannot break free from it uh, without great cost that they're not willing to pay. Um, which, you know, I think they've tried to in the past and failed quite dramatically. Uh, so, yeah, I think so. In in some um, to to really summarize it, it's a combination of uh, Li Kuan Yu um, slowly over time consolidating power um, and exerting great greater control and centralizing more power under his leadership, while uh, both staying at the forefront of broader historical trends and ideologies um, and exploring the limits of some of these uh, in order to achieve the things that he wanted to achieve, in in order to achieve the idealized society that he he envisioned.
0: This is Kirsten Hahn on censorship in modern-day Singapore.
4: Yeah, so, I mean, it is a fake news law in the sense that that's what, the government jumped on. That's the bandwagon they jumped on, to push this narrative to bring in this legislation. So the government basically said, "Well, look, fake news is a problem around the world. It's a problem in the U.S. with Russian meddling. It's a problem in in Europe with you know um, trolls exploiting racial fault lines to kind of sow discord and hatred. It's a problem with Brexit." And so Singapore should be ready um, and take preventive action. So we should be ready if we get targeted. At this point in time, and it's not clear what huge fake news problem we have in Singapore. So like the examples that they brought up about Myanmar and how misinformation and disinformation on Facebook fueled genocide and violence. Yes, that happened in Myanmar and it happened in Sri Lanka. We've not seen anything near that scale in Singapore. In fact, the fake news type of misinformation that we've seen in Singapore has been pretty mild compared to those things. So it's not entirely clear how big the problem actually is in Singapore. And certainly I would say it it's not big enough to justify the law that they've now put into effect. And so this fake news law, which actually has this very long and administrative name, called the Protection from Online Falsehoods and Manipulation Act, or as we like to call it in Singapore, POFMA. Um, it's a very, very broad law that hands a lot of power to government. So what it does is it allows any government minister to issue directives that would require you to put up a clarification or a correction, the wording of which they can dictate, or to remove content from your Facebook page, your blog, or whatever it is, or they could direct um, social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter to block access to your content. And all a government minister needs to do that, to issue that directive, is to say that you've spread a false statement of facts, which is defined as anything that is false or misleading. Um, and that is in the public interest for them to take action. But public interest is also very broadly defined, from anything from national security to protecting public confidence in you know government institutions. And so that's very very broad. It essentially allows government ministers to become the arbiters of truth. You know, there there is a sort of um appeal process if you want so if you want to challenge the order you can first ask the minister to reconsider and if they won't reconsider then you can appeal to the high court but even if you want to appeal to the high court you have to comply with the order first so if he says take this down you have to take it down and then if you go to the high court and the high court rules in your favor you can put it back up but while the high court is you know considering your case you have to comply and take it down. And so there was a lot of unhappiness that, you know, it's essentially given the government so much power without having to go through the courts first. In fact, now the courts, the court process is at the end rather than at the beginning. So I would say like that's just backwards. And it's it's a matter of real concern that it gives the government so much power to determine the narrative and to essentially become the power that decides what is true or false
0: in Singapore. Singapore, do you see it as a a sort of a unique entity or part of one of these larger sort of trends? Is it trending in a way that would look more like um, a Chinese model of sort of state authoritarian capitalism? Is it trending more towards sort of a neoliberal oligarchic um, model where it's just sort of private stakeholders controlling a lot of civil society in a way that looks like it's free but really isn't when we dig into the systems? Are there notions of democracy? What What is Singapore now and how, how can we think about it in relation to other systems uh, currently in place?
4: I think there's a lot of misunderstanding internationally of what Singapore is because certainly, and you see it in the, in the UK when people who are advocating for Brexit insist that the UK post-Brexit would be like the Singapore of Europe or whatever the Singapore and the Thames, they call it. And that's built on really fundamental ignorance of what Singapore is. Because yes, we do have free market capitalism, but we also have an incredibly interventionist government. So, you know, like, I don't think the Brexiters realise when they say they want Brexit Britain to be like Singapore that the government is the biggest landlord in Singapore. They own the majority of the land in Singapore. They are very much involved in capitalism and the market in Singapore. Even though it's free market, there's a lot of state capitalism, plenty of government-linked companies. So all the sort of intervention that Brexiters don't want, we have. Um, And so I think... That definitely is a model that some other countries are looking at. And I don't think Singapore is necessarily following the trend. I think Singapore has quietly been a leader in quite a lot of these things for some time. So, for example, people have asked me, like, do you think Singapore is learning from China? And I said, no, I think China is learning from Singapore. You've, you're seeing it backwards because China is bigger, but you've not noticed Singapore. And Singapore has been doing this sort of more subtle population control for longer. And it's easier for our government in some ways to do it because we are such a small country that it is really much easier to extend that control across the country very quickly and efficiently in ways that you know the Chinese government Will always kind of struggle because China is just so huge. Um, so things like these more subtle types of oppression, like um, pushing the self-censorship, pushing quiet ways of intimidating activists or threatening people's livelihoods in ways that make it very difficult to articulate so, for example, there are concerns about academic freedom in Singapore. We have seen academics for, you know, reasons that we don't fully understand fail to get tenure in Singapore that essentially pushes them out of Singapore. Um, there has been discussion about whether academics have been blacklisted for political reasons. Um but it's very difficult to actually talk about because no one has any solid proof that this is happening. Everyone only has speculation and anxiety and then that fuels even more paranoia and anxiety and self-censorship. And these are things that are ongoing in Singapore but don't really make headlines in the because it's it's just not very interesting for the international media because there's so much that is unsaid so much that cannot be proven and it's just not as sensational as for example people getting disappeared or people getting assassinated as you will see in the philippines or thailand and so this is a very kind of sophisticated developed modern method of surveillance and control and i think singapore has been doing it and doing it pretty well for some time and other countries are looking towards this model
0: this is Jeff Ong on the violence of Aung San Suu Kyi against Rohingya in Myanmar.
5: I do think that um, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi has has, I mean, she has tremendous, genuine support in the country. I think it would be hard to overstate the her kind of level of of kind of moral and intellectual leadership. To to use maybe an outdated Gramscian phrase, I mean, I. I think she, 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 she did have that kind of yes queen energy, I suppose, uh, among exiles as well, I mean, which is sort of my own kind of like uh, my own sort of home community, I suppose. Um, although that's, that's fallen away a lot in, in recent years. But I don't think that she's a fraud in the sense that I don't think she's abandoned her liberal principles, which I do think she holds. I just think that as the history of liberalism teaches us over and over again, you can be a liberal and be completely at peace with with settler colonialism and primitive accumulation in extremely violent ways. I mean, this is the history of slavery. This is the history of settler colonialism from Australia to Israel to the U.S. to South Africa. I mean, these are liberal histories. Um, so I, I, I don't think that she has abandoned liberalism. I think in many ways, she's a perfect liberal. Um, in many ways, she's learned all the right uh, arguments from the West. I mean, those are wrong arguments in, in, in certain ways, but um, she has learned, for example, that in the post 9-11 war world, human rights is something that can be waged very effectively against Islam, for example. Um, I I I think she's she's sort of perfectly compatible with the sort of Bush doctrine foreign policy, um, which has a certain moral framework. And for people who don't fit that, they then become objects of a kind of necessary violence. Um, for me, that that's that's the sort of basics maybe of what of what we've seen in recent years. Um what, what's interesting to me is that. People understand this as a kind of betrayal of liberal principles among kind of Western commentators, which suggests to me the sort of ongoing and sort of shocking inability of of sort of the sort of liberal intelligentsia of of the West in terms of being able to come to sort of any understanding with the history of liberalism as an extraordinarily violent project over 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 centuries. That's sort of where where i would where I would come in on on some of those issues. Um in terms of the, the kind of uh, the sort of imagination of, of people in Burma with respect to Rohingya issues, I've found it difficult to to sort of witness a lot of what we've seen over over recent years. But I guess I guess the difference I'm trying to make maybe is that I, I don't think that that what we've seen not only from Aung San Suu Kyi, but in this sort of public sphere. Uh, in, in Burma by sort of treasured um, democratic uh, uh, figures people like uh, uh, minko nine and and, and and others um, is 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 actually had unfortunately a kind of fidelity to a certain kind of liberal project and so to me what what's disappointing is not that they might have sort of uh, retreated from principles they did or did not hold in the past but actually uh, understanding them as part of this sort of broader history.
0: How do, do the, what's happened to the Rohingya reflect on, as you said, sort of the fidelity of liberalism and, and does it point to or offer you maybe a dark uh, vision of things
5: to come? It is a kind of dark history of things to come, I suppose. I mean, in, in like super blatant terms and, and I've, I've talked about this with some of the some of the guys at chewing and and written about this a bit on their blog. But um, I think in many ways, what we see in Rakhine State with the uh, expulsion of of vast Rohingya communities is something like a a sort of violent logic of how to manage surplus populations where uh, it might be easier to uh, Kill off uh, a, a lot of people who are sort of no longer useful to formal capitalist production. Um, i mean this this is the sort of abjection of surplus populations writ large and and I do think it's something that you see from the Mediterranean to the camps in Bangladesh along the border with rakhine state um, it's uh, it's it's a it's a dark uh, it is a dark picture um, I'm not sure. I mean, you don't see. You don't. I. I I guess. uh, What various people from sort of maybe Marx to Polanyi try to teach us is that in these kind of dark times, you have this sort of dialectical sort of maybe, you know, something else emerges where where people you know try and uh, create something better, right? It sort of inspires maybe revolutionary upheaval. It's actually not clear to me what people should do. Cause I, I, I don't actually, I'm not really sure. Um, you know, I was just re- listening to what I thought was a pretty good discussion between, um, do you know this guy, this guy, Joshua Clover?
0: Yeah. His, his mama is Carol Clover, who wrote one of the best horror textbooks from a feminist lens and he wrote riot strike riot.
5: Right, right, right. So I, I was, he just did a podcast with this guy, uh, Bernard Harcourt from, from Columbia. Um, about the relationship between theory and praxis. And and I think I agree with Clover when he said that he's not actually sure that the kinds of theorizing that that tends to happen in sort of, at least like in, in kind of academic, but also to some extent, and to a great extent, kind of radical circles as well, um, whether or not that informs or creates very much praxis. Um, for him Praxis is maybe in some ways a bit more autonomous and it and it will it will only ever emerge from sort of organic historical conditions so there's there's maybe not very much that someone like me could do for example and at the level of at the level of sort of clarifying um, what's going on or like I was saying before and I got some of what I said before from from Clover as well this whole question of this sort of long history of ideology critique in the 20th century and maybe whether or not that might be coming to a close. I mean, I think that one of the lessons we take from that story is that it didn't really work. <laughs> uh, and maybe now that we see these, these sort of, um, the sort of gears starting to, uh, uh, come into crisis to mix metaphors. Sorry about that. Um, but the, the contradictions of liberalism may be emerging with more clarity since 2008. Um, and we see different kinds of struggles emerging. Um, that will happen. I think no matter what someone like me writes on a blog with Chuan um, for better, or for worse. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I think, um, forms of struggle do tend to reflect uh, the, their sort of material underlying conditions. Um, although I do think forms of struggle also can themselves then also transform material conditions. So it's not like entirely a sort of base superstructure kind of thing, but um, yeah, I mean, if and when we're likely to see something that might in a sort of coherent way, push back on the kind of abjection of surplus populations, yeah i mean i i I think we I think we do see that to a certain extent in in and when when we think about the sort of riots of of london or or the banlie outside Paris, you could argue that the movement of the squares was maybe in certain places um, uh, contained some of this this kind of impulse as well um, but the question is whether or not these might sort of concatenate into something larger. And and what kinds of work might be necessary to make that happen? Um, and those, I think, kind of remain open questions, I
0: suppose. This is Long Bui on Vietnam's diaspora and the ghost of South Vietnam.
6: I would say that we remember the country as it is and it was, but when you go back, you're you're shocked by the newness or the modernity of Vietnam. You're like, wait a minute, this is what what am I going back to? And so when I went, I, my, I tried to study and look, went back to, I went to Vietnam Vietnam looking for South Vietnam specifically. And I tried to go to the South Vietnamese archive. I tried to go to the museums. It wasn't giving me what I needed necessarily because it's too militaristic. And what happened was I was looking for goals in a country that kept evolving. It wasn't like the, the country collapsed and then the, the immigrants, the migrants that left, the, the refugees left with this, we call the immigrant bubble. And then they try to remember that, that same goals from the seventies. Uh, I couldn't find it and I wanted to find it, but then I knew that South Vietnam is part of the, the evolution or change of Vietnam itself. And it's part of the diaspora, because everywhere you go, you live in Little Saigon. So if you want to look for South Vietnam, you go to all the Little Saigons that exist and are dotted around the world in different ethnic enclaves. And so um, Vietnam itself is a contested imaginary. It's not just for Vietnamese people. It has over 50 ethnic groups. And Vietnamese just happened to be the dominant group. And so I, um, I recognize that a Vietnam, Vietnam for Vietnamese is also a nationalistic, uh, imperialist gesture that doesn't recognize all the groups that exist within it. And so South Vietnam is one way to see Vietnam as contested, truly contested, because pe- people see it as a Cold War ally. It, it existed from this time and it ended at, at 75 when the communists took over but you just use it as a portal to look through the many complications even in thinking about Vietnam or the war itself. It's just, it's just too, so complicated. And so I, I had to weave through my own personal history, my own family history, and the, comp- the politics of the community, which can, which can be very anti-communist, and think about what this means for different people because different people say different things. And so I, um, I recognize that it is, it is a ghost but for some people, it, was ne- it never died. It's, it was, it's not a ghost, in fact. In fact, uh, I got in trouble with some military veterans when I said, how do you feel when South Vietnam uh, fell? And they're like, what are you talking about? It never fell. The communists just took over the country. It's, we're still fighting the war. So for them, the war never ended. And so that's why I, I recognized very soon that you know, our sense of temporality can never truly uh, capture everybody's multiplicity.
0: Something that is really interesting is you go into this term, sort of Vietnamization, which um, you then link as a through line throughout uh, U.S. uh, white uh, imperialist foreign policy, where it's, it's basically, I mean, to be as crass about it as I interpreted it, where it's sort of boorish imperialists essentially saying, well, the natives aren't ready for democracy and you have a line in Returns of War where you say uh, on Vietnamization. Vietnamization discourse suggested that the South Vietnamese then must be made free by a superior paternalistic power able to act as a guarantor of life, liberty, and happiness. And I'm wondering not so much for Vietnam but more for white masculinity as it relates to Uh, colonialism and imperialism what did you what are some of the ideas you're trying to tease out about whiteness uh, or white supremacy when you look at vietnamization
6: Mm, well first off nixon was a white nationalist there's no as you can't get around that. the guy was racist uh when and our current president is currently cribbing a lot of the phrases he used like the silent Mm -hmm. majority to do that. Mm-hmm. So, so, when it came to the form sort of victimization, it's like, we'll just put the burden on the Vietnamese people without giving them the say to do that because the South Vietnamese are like, you can't abandon us like this. And yet, and yet they're having trouble with the South Vietnamese government and the people. So, but then they, they, they want to keep them somehow at arm's length and then say, you're, you're in charge of handling yourself. So, it is a form of white patriarchy say, we enter the, we enter the fray, but we'll let you handle the chaos now that, that, now that it's, on, it's on you. The, the burden's on you. So like for poor people that the poverty is on them, for women, sexism, they they have to deal with sexism. And so the the culprit, the blame is never on the person giving to it. And we're talking in government, by the way, back in a time when second wave feminism was just trying to break, uh, dominated by white men. And so these policies aren't neutral, they're created by certain demographic of people that see other people in uh, sexual, gendered, and racial terms. So there's no, there's no way to go around that. that this is an imperialist gesture. And so that's, that's something that I think we, Vietnamization was the, I found an interesting term. I said, like, this is an interesting term that I think that I can, if Vietnamization is a process, a project, what does it mean to carry that project into the present day? What does it mean for Vietnamese themselves to Vietnamize the discourse that was supposedly Vietnamized by these Americans? So it's, it's kind of taking back the word a little bit. I remix it to give, uh, to say, I want to start Vietnamese voices. That's what real victimization looks like. When you give Vietnamese people the chance to art- uh, articulate their voice. And so that's, so I changed the public policy focus and the military uh, o- uh, impetus behind victimization to think about cultural victimization, the victimization of history and memory. Uh, the, the I, You know, these personal forms of victimization, like I have to like with South Vietnamese people go back in Vietnam and try to look at South Vietnam it's a form of vietnamization like you're trying to find trying to map South Vietnam onto current day Vietnam so that's a form of vietnamization where you're of, of, of projecting South vietnamese in and onto uh, the, the landscape so so many so I try to explore as many ways I can play with this term because I think uh, words have meaning and power and only when you stretch it out can you really see their implications
0: this is May Trung on the state's handling of COVID nineteen in Vietnam. I think that
7: there's some truth to that, but I don't think it tells the whole story. Um, so I don't think that Vietnam's success, like simply, uh, is simply a matter of like obedience, obedience, on loyalty of the citizen to the authorities. Um, so we have to remember that the Communist Party. Communist Party has led the country for like 19 years or or 45 years, around 45 years since a reunification in 1975. And I think that all these years of the Communist Party leadership has a, created a political culture in which citizens entrust the government with dealing with crisis. So the Party leadership in the world and its ability to lift Vietnam out of poverty has, has given its credibility to handle to handle crisis. So when there, there are crises in Vietnam, like the natural disaster wars or now the coronavirus, citizens know that the uh, central the government is a legitimate actor in the society to to deal with the the crisis. So the party gain its legitimacy uh, from its. Uh, from the wars against French and American force. and so I, I, th- I think by declaring a war on the coronavirus, the, the party has emphasized uh, against that its uh, leadership in any crisis that the country uh, that the country faced. Um, so I think Vietnamese people trust the government in dealing with the crisis, and they want to help the government to deal with this. Uh, not just because they feel that they, they, are, they are fear of the government or they are just out of obedience. And uh, you can see during this crisis, many individuals, enterprise, and organizations are willing to donate money to the state to help the state fight against the coronavirus. Another uh, another characteristic in the Vietnamese context is the... Social pressures that people face in 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 life, um, especially peer pressure or social pressure from family members or relatives, because now nationalism is equated with like helping the government to fight against the virus, or uh, and that means you show your love for the country. So if any individual who who like do not follow the guidelines or who behaves in a way that negatively affects the society, they will be labeled unpatriotic or they will be under pressure, social, strong social pressure. So I think that it also help people to work together to fight against the virus. I wanna just uh, wanna say one more thing. One of the things I think uh, that uh, makes Vietnam successful is um, the propaganda from the state so state media as media in vietnam is basically controlled by the state so from the beginning state media disseminated information about the virus the severity of the virus and also how to prevent how to avoid the virus like have a propaganda on washing hands wearing masks something like that so these um All this information, this information makes people perceive the threat of the virus to the national security. So people know that, oh, it's a serious thing, it's not like a normal flu. Um, I think that's uh, also partly explained why Vietnam has been successful.
0: This is Regine Kabato on Duterte, the Philippines, and COVID-19. One thing that a lot of people, a lot of watchers
8: in the Philippines may have noticed about how the lockdown is playing out in the Philippines is the concern surrounding human rights violations and potential um, police and military abuse. Um, And this has definitely been something that has existed long before the pandemic, um, long before this lockdown. Um, It's something that was already a primary concern when President Rodrigo first rose to power in 2016 and when he launched his bloody drug war, which has left thousands of of people dead. Now we kind of see um, that there has been a record of possible and potential human rights abuses under lockdown, and it's only been a month so far. So so far, I've kept a running thread of cases that I've monitored through local reports on Twitter, and we've heard of, um, we've heard of cases like um, village officials putting um, curfew violators in a dog cage, um, village officials making people um, sit out in the middle of the hot sun. Um, which some, some human rights advocates would actually qualify as a form of torture because it's prolonged exposure. Um, and a lot of other very concerning things. There have been a lot of arrests, um, under lockdown. And then, you know, when these people get arrested or when these people get detained, they're put in very congested and very, um, crowded jails. Um, and I think all, all this, like, came to a fore when, um, yesterday, we saw actual footage of um, police shooting dead um, an army veteran, a, re- a retired Filipino soldier. It's definitely not the first case of a killing under lockdown. There have around, there have been around at least two other cases of police killings at a checkpoint. Um, but this is probably the first that has been caught on video. Um, and it's the first, therefore, that's um probably like you know going to have like an impact. Um for the first two reports that I've seen that, that I've monitored, um mostly these people have like the victims have been nameless and faceless. Um but now we kind of have an actual face and an actual backstory to the guy who was who was killed by police. So maybe for, for the listeners I could give a bit of an overview. Um, so around Tuesday afternoon, um, a policeman shot the guy whom he deemed as a quarantine violator. And in the background, you will hear a woman screaming, asking police, asking the policeman why, why he shot the guy, why he didn't fire a warning shot first, why he didn't search the guy first. Um, local reports say that the Police later claimed that he actually had a gun on him, um, and but the the guy's family will deny these allegations. Um, they told the local press that he actually had no gun on him. Um, that he was also um, an army veteran who was last deployed. Um, to fight ISIS affiliated militants in 2017, and he came home with a post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, he also was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, so this guy was somebody who was, you know, mentally challenged, who had a history of mental illness, and he was just, you know, shot and, and killed point blank. So this is the kind of uh, situation that we're seeing play out in the
4: Philippines.
8: Um and it might for, for for watchers in the Philippines, this kind of scene probably is not surprising anymore. I mean we've seen we've seen it play out before, um, in the drug war. Um and it's just something that, you know, has been kind of put into the context of, of the current
0: pandemic. This is Nicole Corato on the vulgarity of Duterte and his enduring popularity in the Philippines.
9: Right. Well, I think the first point, yeah, to underscore here is um, the tolerance to his vulgarity is not, again, part of manipulation or, you know, just the spectacular character of his his rhetoric. Um, Imagine that if you're in Manila and you're queuing for a train in the morning just to get to work on time, and it takes you three hours to get to the car of the train, Aren't you just going to say, motherfucker, this is enough, right? I would say that. Or when the internet connection is just so slow, aren't you really just going to curse Duterte style? So one argument is that Duterte is just articulating what has been in the minds of many people, except that he uses the podium of the presidency to lay bare those anxieties, those frustrations, whether these are middle-class frustrations like the internet and the train, or whether these are frustrations of people from more um, rural communities. So that's one consideration. He's really just mirroring what people are already feeling. But the other insight here that I found uh, talking to some of his supporters is that they do recognize that his vulgarity is a character flaw but it's a character flaw they're willing to overlook. So even if we look at polling data, there was a poll that asked people about uh, whether it's okay that Duterte threatened, I think it's human rights um, representatives from the UN, uh, when he threatened them that they'd be fed to crocodiles. Majority of the Filipinos actually don't agree with that. Um, Majority of Filipinos also think that his sexism is, is unacceptable. But on balance, given that character flaw compared to what other things he has to offer, they're just willing to look the other way. So I think the vulgarity is an issue. So I wouldn't say that it's not a problem for Filipinos, but I think it is a character flaw that they're willing to overlook for, for example, the promise of shared prosperity. Um, But I think things are starting to change in the sense that the Philippines had a midterm election uh, last May. And of course, Duterte wiped out the opposition, and that's not an overstatement. It's the first time, actually, in many, many years uh, that nobody from the opposition won a seat in the Senate. So all of Duterte's candidates won. But what's interesting about the development in these elections is the emergence of what I would think as alternative leadership styles to Duterte. So local mayors, for example, the mayor of Manila now kind of speaks like Duterte. He uses street language. He uses very... Um, very folksy kind of kind of language, but he never curses. And this man really came from the slums. He was literally uh, a scavenger uh, when he was a child. And, and he's getting a lot of media attention because he was able to clear the streets of Manila, he was able to although controversially because he got rid of some vendors who are quite poor in a very, um, not violent, but very strong-willed way. Uh, but the point here is, there are emerging alternatives to Duterte style who can also be street smarts, you can also be tough without having to curse, without having to say, I will kill you all, while having the the guts to say, um, the police has to do its job, but it has to respect human rights. So I think there's now this this perspective that you don't have to be a strong man to be strong willed. So I think that's worth monitoring these kinds of Duterte esque kind of figure, but also has a strong view of how governance can look like without being vulgar and without having to, to kill people. So, so yeah, I mean, these are different um, schools of thought. Um, but I think Duterte is very much a product of the current moment um, of the rise of digital media where authenticity is the most important characteristic of the leader more than competency. So it's very much fitting um, to this political moment. So I think um, that kind of politics is here to stay. We've seen this with Boris Johnson, with Donald Trump, uh, Geert Van Wilders, right? So this is not unique to the Philippines. It's very much, yeah, it's very much a product of the contemporary time.
0: This is Deborah Augustine on racism in Malaysia.
10: We actually, we have over 60 ethnic groups in Malaysia, but Usually, the the country gets kind of boiled, boiled down to the majority Malay Malaysian population, and then you know then we have significant Chinese and Indian Malaysian populations. But we also have um, a variety of indigenous people uh, in Malaysia, both in the peninsula and in Malaysian Borneo. Um, it's interesting to talk. I mean, this we are in an in a stage politically. In Malaysia, where racial there's a lot of racial tension, um, and when this coup government came into power, the coup government is made up of a lot of Malay nationalist parties, and there was an increase in hate speech towards non-Malays on social media. So this is prior to the pandemic, and you were starting to see, um, you know, racist rhetoric about Chinese people. In the early stages of the pandemic, um, people were saying, oh, you know, look at these Chinese people in China, the things they eat, like they're unclean. That's why this virus is um, attacking them. Also, how China has treated Uyghurs in in China, Um, you know, there was a lot of rhetoric saying, oh, well, this is punishment from God for the way that you've treated the Uyghurs. So things like that were already circulating when the virus surfaced in China, but because the majority of the infections have now come from this this public movement in Malaysia, I think then you're seeing kind of the reverse like people are airing their anti-malay sentiments and anti-islam as as sentiments. The politics in this country are very race-based, we do have race-based parties. For example, Amno is a a Malay party. Bersatu is a Malay party. And there isn't much directive from the government to, to, you know, to sort of counter um, racism against minorities. In fact, when this government came into power, a lot of people said, you know, this is a really bad time for racial minorities in Malaysia because you have an almost all Malay government. There are very few ministers in the new cabinet who are non-Malays in a multicultural society that's dangerous, right? When 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 the government is made up of the majority or only one race, um, there is a fear that other communities are not going to have their interests or needs uh, represented in government. So, Unfortunately, yeah, we have not seen directives um, from the government at large, you know, to try and combat hate speech. I think in some ways, their legitimacy comes from some of this divisiveness. So I don't see them anytime soon coming up with a way to, um, to counter
0: it. How are, how are civil society groups and uh, civic leaders trying to step in where the government is failing to do so?
10: That's been a really, I think, heartening response. There is a movement called Kita Jaga Kita, which means we take care of each other or we care for us. And it was started by a um, young adult author, Hannah Alkaf. Um She had been part of an earlier movement called Pulang Ngundi, which means return to vote, where Malaysians had helped each other um, returned to their hometowns to vote when it was announced the, the polling date was going to be in a weekday. So, you know, lots of Malaysians helped pay for each other's flight tickets or train tickets. Um, so yeah, so she she spoke to some of the people who had mobilized during Pulang Mubundi and came up with this uh, initiative called Kita Jagakita, Kita, which lists organizations that are stepping in to take care of marginalized groups that may not be getting the the aid that they need um, so you know you can you can post uh your initiative whether you need help whether you need donations or volunteers or you can say you need help and this is what you need um, and people can then go to this website which is uh kitajaga.us so K-I-T-A-G-A-G-A dot aus um and so that's been great and and people have really when they've seen um, appeals for help, whether that's you know, like the, there were four Rohingya families in Perak, the north of Malaysia, looking to for help with rent and food for two weeks. People donated money so that they could get those supplies. Um, there's a lot of soup kitchens in Malaysia, in uh, particularly in Kuala Lumpur, that you know, were wondering if they'd be able to go out and, and give, distribute food to people. And, you know, through the donations from the public, they've been able to keep doing their work while working with the government to to distribute food in a way that complies with the um, MCO. MCO. So, yeah, you're really, I am, I'm, I'm, I think, one of the heartening things has been to see the, the civil society and just societal response. I think there's sort of a feeling that, you know, it's up to us um, to, to take care of people because in we haven't seen the economic response from the government that's going to take care of people who rely on daily wages, people who are migrants, people who are refugees, even people who are fishermen. They're really being hurt economically right now. Um, A lot of small traders, people who sell, you know, food in roadside stalls, they're all being hit by this. And so if there hasn't yet been um, a federal response to help these people out, and I think the communities are
0: stepping in to help each other, which has been great. This is Jasmine Chia on neoliberalism in Thailand.
11: In terms of the historical context of the military, it has always, It is a child of American capitalism. The military was only really able to consolidate its power in the Cold War because of American aid and American support. And it did so by um, basically creating a free market system and a free market society in which communism became this very hated thing, right? And so the... The language I think of neoliberal capitalism has very much filtered into Thai society and very much upholds the military's power. And there is this very very symbiotic, histo- deeply historical relationship between a sort of hyper capitalism and the militarism that you see today, right? And that is true since you know 1945 until 2020. My personal opinion is, from a more anthropological perspective, you have these structures of community care. That date back to fe- more feudal systems, um, you have these structures of strong community care that really help mitigate this. And this is not something that's really a function of the economic or the political system that's been imposed top down, but more a function of, um, of long standing cultures, I think, around, uh, around family, around security, around philanthropy. And so I think what you see in Thailand, right, is like, for example, there is very little state support um, from a social security perspective for the poor, right? We don't have really any sort of social insurance for migrant workers who no longer have work and are unemployed. Um, many of them, as I mentioned, are very concerned about getting this 5,000 baht handout. And even then, right, like a 5,000 baht handout for someone who's lost their job for like the next three months is, is nothing. And so, well, it's, it's, it's important but it's not enough right but what you see happening instead is this very strong sense of community engagement saying hey why don't we just donate our money to these communities why should we wait for the government and i think that comes out of this very long standing tradition of of caring and of strong community care at a ground level that is not really related to the state and has never been mandated by the state and has never been controlled by the state now i think you would say, obviously, this is also another symptom of the neoliberal system in which, um, you know, like social security becomes essentially privatized, right, which is what has happened here. I think that's very true. But I think at the same time that these systems are much stronger than sort of the GoFundMe healthcare systems in America, or the, um, the, the charity organizations, right, because they're underpinned by a strong um, foundation of family, and family respect. And so at the end of the day, there are going to be elderly people in Chiang Mai who who don't have access to regular means of income, but their children are going to be right there with them and their children are going to be looking after them, even if they can't get to hospitals. And so I think it's it's different in that sort of cultural way. Um, But as I said, I think this neoliberal language at least, and in part this neoliberal logic has very much filtered into Thailand. Um, one other anecdote I might offer is recently, um, you know, the a lot of p- private hospitals have been partnering with hotels to offer self-quarantine facilities, right? And so you'll have these quarantine facilities in South run by the by the army, and then you have these quarantine facilities where you can pay fifty thousand baht for a fourteen day hotel stay. And I was furious. I was like, why do we have this? extremely classist system of self-quarantine. Um, and you know, a lot of people were like, well, Jasmine, if they can afford it, why shouldn't they be able to pay for it, right? And so, so I do think there is this still very strong market logic that predominates here. But as I said, I think that is mitigated by this system of ground level community care.
0: This is Pavin on the Royalist Marketplace and digital activism in Thailand's protests.
12: Well, I mean, I just realized that uh, the Royce Marketplace, they have more than a million members. You know what, that is the world's 18th largest Facebook group. So, uh, uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm quite sure that I am running you know, a, a group that sort of, you know, that big. And that becomes so powerful because it provides a platform you know, for anyone to To be able to speak freely and seriously about the monarchy, and I think that is the first point. That's why the that's why the government found my group to be threatening. Second point is that they have to find it threatening because these old regime, uh, somewhat they are they 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 fail to catch up with the reality of the twenty first century, because you know they are they were good at handling mainstream media. Uh, all type of technology handling, right? In the past, basically how they trans- transferred the, the information top down one way. We as citizen only had to listen to what the state said, but the, 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 the evolution, the revolution of social media changed all this. And I think that states in this part of the world, at least, you know, they are still very catching up and they still have to when they try to block my group they realize that blocking the group, that would be the end of the story, but it is not. You know, there are ways to unblock it. Or what I'm doing in protest again, that is basically set up a new group. And right now we have almost 900,000 members, less than three there. So, I mean, this kind of is going to show that the battle, you know, maybe it might still be on the street, but the initial battle today has moved to the cyberspace. And I don't think the government is, well uh, equipped enough to deal with it that's why you know facebook coming in that's why they try to force facebook that's why it become a legal battle i don't know uh, the last point you made as yes, i i i think i think it is i, I agree with that that uh, whatever we have, the, the activity online you know which has become so significant uh in fact, you know, it's is 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 the main is main determining factor determining factor whether you know your mission would be accomplished or not. You have to be able to, to be able to dominate public opinion in the cyberspace first, yeah, before anything else. Uh, and Thailand could set could set, set an example, right? If we can do this online and then we sort of spread ideology to the people on the street. Yep. And eventually if we happen to win, so this would be a good case of Thailand that, you know, can show the world that elsewhere, you can also do this too. And then, you know, the inspiration can move across, uh, water. just like young Thai students got inspired by Hong Kong students and likewise. So I think this is not a mission, of you know, one country in particular. I do not claim though that you know, I want to fight for my country and suddenly I want to fight for the world because I would give myself too much credit. But I just hope that whatever I do, my tiny contribution, if this would make a change in my society, I hope that other country would be able to learn from it and then take it further.
0: Well, Pavan, it was a pleasure. Is there anything you wanted to add and um, where can people find you if they'd like to learn more about your work?
12: Well, I mean, you can find me on Facebook. Full name. <laughs> it's easy. I mean, I mean, just one, just one tiny point. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. um, I, I work as an academic. I have my serious side to it. Mm-hmm. For example, I have my books. I have my, you know, journal article. I also have another side of it that people come to, come to be familiar with it. Basically, this fun side, this of being so sarcastic that I like to use sarcasm and satire, you know, to attack government. And especially, you know, for an institution like the monarchy, they just want to be serious all the time. But for me to try to bring down that level of of, of reverence, I use joke, I use sarcasm to bring it down. And it seems to be very effective. That's why I think I can connect with the younger generation quite well, because I think entertainment, people love it. You know, sometimes substance alone, Maybe it might be a bit boring. So that's why I mix this up. I mean, I hope that, you know, if anyone sure. want to follow in the footsteps, then please go ahead. Just one last point, for example, TikTok. You know, I turned TikTok into a political TikTok.
0: Right.
12: That, you know, I would pick a conversation or politician or monarchy, and then I started to do TikTok, mumming it, making fun of it. My God, that is so powerful because, you know, it can penetrate you know even for those who do not clearly but then once they, they watch the TikTok within the period of one minute they get the point so that's all right. I want to say